before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my co-host of the end game Bill Fackenstein and a very special guest Greg Jensen the co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates the famed Connecticut based asset manager with almost 150 billion dollars under management in this wide-ranging conversation Greg Bill and I discussed the extraordinary amount of historical work Bridgewater have undertaken to build their framework and gain an understanding of how the firm views the shifting tectonic plates of global monetary and fiscal policy in the post-COVID era. We hear Greg's views on inflation, the Fed, portfolio hedges, and previous historical parallels, as well as the likely future for the dollar and central bank policy in an age dubbed internally at Bridgewater as MP3. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, and The Narrative Game, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that... Please enjoy the show. Well, Greg, welcome to the Endgame Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Well, thanks for having me. We've both been looking forward to this conversation for a while. It's um, you know, th- This series has been such a fascinating journey. It's kind of gone in directions that, that Bill and I didn't really think it would go in, and, and we've kind of kicked around so many interesting ideas. And, and what we've... Yeah, you know, really tried to do every time we've had one of these conversations is just really start with some really broad ideas and then kind of see where they take us. And they they inevitably focus on two or three things. And, and there's there's definitely a few themes that come up recurringly. So we'll definitely, if they don't come up naturally in this conversation, we'll kind of see where your thoughts are on that. But I, I guess to kick off, what would be great is to get a sense of how your framework at Bridgewater has had to, I guess, evolve over the last kind of 13, 14 years in the age of QE and all this extraordinary policy. I mean, if we could kind of kick that around, just just kind of walk through how you you feel that, that you've had to adapt to, to meet the times. Yeah, great question. So let me just start with what we do at Bridgewater and, and then we can talk about how, how it evolves over time. But for 45 years, the only thing that Bridgewater has been trying to answer two questions. Um, one is how does the global economy work? And how do you take that understanding and utilize it to build great portfolios? Those are that's the focus of the organization. That's all we do. And we've been focused since 1980 in systemizing that thinking so that everything that we've ever learned about markets or economies, we've written down, programmed into algorithms in 1980. That was rules on yellow piece of paper that with employees going around with scientific calculators. Today, that's algorithms, but those algorithms reflect the logic of, well, how does this machine work? How do we track the money in the world? Why do assets go up or down in different conditions? What are assets pricing? All those kinds of questions and building that logic over time. So it's a what I call a compound understanding machine, but we keep trying to learn, right? And, and so when you talk about the evolution, I mean, I just think of it all the time, there are things happening in the world that are surprising us. And that's then 
the new research is all focused on those surprises and things that we haven't already built in. Of course, when you think about quantitative easing and even MP3, I wouldn't really describe that as a surprise in the following sense that, look, if you take, as we did at Bridgewater, hundreds of years of history, these patterns emerge, right? Yeah. You have major debt cycles, interest rate cycles. You get to the end of those cycles. When you get such debt problems that interest rates get near zero, you always get money printing and quantitative easing. So we had been thinking about quantitative easing. I remember we built our first systems around that in 2001, obviously well before the financial crisis. A, as US interest rates in that cycle got down near zero, we recognized the risk of it. And Japan was starting to play around in very minor ways. And we studied the Great Depression. We studied, well, how does, how does that work as monetary policy, recognizing these different types of eras and, um, and built very crude systems for what to do in markets when you get to quantitative easing. How do you reflect that pressure in a way similar to how you would reflect movements in interest rates in your views about what's going to happen to growth, inflation, and asset prices? So then in comes 2008, and we get to quantitative easing, and we're using those processes and then we're learning, right? Like a dollar of QE in the US is much more effective than a dollar of QE in, in Japan. Well, wh why is that, mm -hmm. right? And understanding the mechanics of that. Well, all it depends on who gets the money, what they do with it. And that if they're buying one type of assets from one type of investors in the US and another asset from a different type of investor in Japan, you're gonna get different outcomes. And so we've refined our understanding of quantitative easing just by staring at what's surprising us, learning, building that into the process and you keep moving. Right. And today we've moved from up, you know, the period from let's say the 1950s through 2008, a, a period of interest rate, what we call MP1, into MP2 being quantitative easing. And now this phase that's been accelerated with the pandemic has been this movement into monetary, what we call monetary policy three, but it's the merger of fiscal and monetary policy. And that's all happening for reasons that have played out before in history. It's happening again. And it's, um, I think, while it's very hard day to day to know what's going to come next, I think the big waves you can see and the likely cause effect linkages of where this is headed over some period of time. And so that's what we study and we keep studying, keep evolving, thinking about new things that are emerging over the last 15 years, dealing with China's rise and what is it like to have two world economic powers at the same time or inequality and what it's like in a democratic capitalist society to get these levels of inequality. All of those questions are the questions that we've continued to build into our process, reflect on all of history and try to therefore have an advantage on what's likely to come next. Yeah, I, I love this historical focus because it's, you know, I keep talking to people about this and I, and I, I do believe all the answers are there somewhere in the history books. Because like, as you say, we, this, this has all happened before in various forms, maybe not at the same time as it is now. So as you've kind of thought about this ahead of time, and, and if you're thinking about QE in 2001, you're seven years ahead of its arrival. As it's come in, how has the initial kind of explosion of QE into markets perhaps kind of differed from the way you had kind of gamed it to play out once it finally got here? Well, I think the thing that, um, you know, what the, the original QE in 2008 really offset a credit contraction. Yep. And that's actually easy for the central banks to do. They can print money, offset a credit contraction. And we were very right in that period in thinking that's not going to be inflationary because all they're doing is offsetting a, credit, a disinflationary, deflationary credit contraction. This is not inflationary. It is supporting assets, supporting balance sheets and moving us along in that way. And so that period you know, I think we nailed the mechanics of that correctly, measured those, those roughly right. 
As I said, subsequently, I'd say we got somewhat surprised by how stuck money got in Japan and Europe, and it didn't go out in the global economy as much and, and didn't create the same degree of outcomes. And then more recently, while we were thinking that the destiny was there, that you would end up with QE not doing enough because QE works through asset prices. Asset yeah. prices keep rising, but this kept making the wealth divide worse and money kept getting stuck at the top. You're giving more and more money to the people that need it the least, that are doing the least with it in terms of the real economy. And so money's piling up and you had this stuck at the top phenomenon in the US that itself was unsustainable, which would eventually lead to some redistribution, some of that essentially taking the deflationary impulses in the world and transferring them to the people that hadn't accumulated the wealth. One way or the other, we thought that mechanism would come up, that you would see that over the next decade. And of course, it all happens in a six-month period, a very, very, very fast period. And so that has you know radically changed things. Now, and I think you're seeing it. It's interesting. You know, we've been wrong about bonds over the last, or particularly the last few months, because we think that nominal GDP impact of what's going on is going to be huge and more sustained than the Fed expects because you've created all of this money, all of this demand without corresponding supply. And you're seeing all of that in the stats. Interestingly, and it's a good humbling experience to go through, you know, in the markets, it's been different, right? You're not seeing the flow through. Now, there's good reason for that in that the Fed continues to buy half the bonds that are being issued. The other bonds, in a sense, are being funded by this excess amount of cash everywhere and excess cash of balance sheets. How sustainable that is when nominal GDP is flying and eventually the Fed's going to withdraw the purchase of bonds, I'd, I'd expect anyway, if, as, if nominal GDP continues to be as strong as we expect. But that's certainly been a learning, which is this period, despite the tremendous pressure in the economy and the tremendous shortages and the obvious inflation pressures that are now even showing up in the government statistics, that um, you still have had interest rates remain where they are. That's been, you know, again, the markets and economies continue to always humble you with things that are surprises. And so obviously one of our current research projects are getting to the bottom of the buying and selling that's causing that, how sustainable it is. It looks unsustainable to us, but, but anyway, we'll see as that evolves. You, uh, I think, just touched on something about inflation that I, that I keep scratching my head over, and, and that is, it would seem, and based on what I've read that you've written, that it seems like a reasonable expectation that, that inflation will not prove to be transitory. Obviously, we don't know that for sure, but we could make a pretty good case that that'll be the outcome. And yet, it seems to me that market participants don't want to believe that. I've seen surveys, you've probably seen the same ones, where it seems like the vast majority of investors think that it will be transitory. And I'm guessing the bond market must think that because otherwise, why would it be where it is? Is that sort of the same conclusion you have that people have decided that it's transitory? And that if it's not transitory, we're going to go through a, a whole shift where a lot of investors have to start moving their portfolios and their um, the assets that they own around. Yeah, I agree with how you're reading the market. Certainly, you can see most directly in the break-even inflation rate is quite is quite low. Um, relative to what's going on with inflation. And in our view, the, the physics of what's necessary, you know, that in one sense, people could think of inflation as bad, but you have to consider all your options here. What are the options? We have a situation where wealth is divided extremely poorly. You have a situation where the interest rates are already, have already been pushed to zero and, and you're only stimulating what you're stimulating that this move to fiscal policy is the natural outcome of this, the end of this 40 year cycle. If you go back to the early eighties, you had a 
cycle that started with tight money to get inflation down. That deflationary wave was compounded by globalization, the lowering of tariffs, the benefiting from the labor force all over the world. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.